Hello everyone, I hope you are all doing well and are in good health. In this episode, we will be talking to a very special guest, Matt Rimley, who is Hung Papa Lakota from Standing Rock. He is an absolute champion of Indigenous rights with years of advocacy regarding climate justice, preserving Native culture, education, political advocacy, and much more. He also has a website, lastrealindians.com, with a lot of information about current events in the Native community, so make sure to check it out and also follow their Instagram. There's so much we can learn from him, so without further ado, here we go. Thank you so much for coming. I'm super excited to have you here on the Originated Podcast today. And uh, you are just such an influential figure and you've done so much amazing work. So um, if you could sort of start off by talking a little bit about your background, um, how you have you know built your advocacy over the years and things like that. For sure, thank you. And thank you for uh, the kind words and um, introduction. Uh, I, I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on your podcast today. I look forward to our uh, conversation. Uh, so I'm going to start off actually with um, kind of a traditional, our traditional uh, protocol for how we introduce ourselves in our uh, traditional language. And um, I'll explain, um, translate afterwards. <laughs> So Hamatako Yepi, Chante Washtea, Nape, Chiozapi, Awakiam Wanatan, Amachiam, Wachichu Ya Matt Remley, Amachiam, Ina Donna Harrison, Achiam, Ate Charles Remley, Achiam, Unchi, Dorothy Nadine White, and Dorothy Remley, Awichakiam, Lala Colonel Harrison, and Herbert Remley, Awichakiam, Yan Woslaha. Emataha, Wana Seattle Ewati, Marysville School District, Wawashi Echamu, Petukile Wopila, Petukile Wawashteoha, Tukashila, Wichinchila Kile, Wayahoyo, Na Wopila Taka Tukashila. Well, my relatives, with uh, good feelings in my heart, I extend a hand out to each and every one of you. My Lakota name is Wakian Wa'anatan, which translates to He Charges with Thunder. And my English name is Matt Remley. My parents are uh, Donna Harrison of Standing Rock. And my father is uh, Charles Remley. Uh, my grandparents are Dorothy Harrison and uh, Dorothy Remley. And my grandfathers are Colonel Harrison and uh, uh, Herbert Remley. I come from Standing Rock, but currently live here in uh, Seattle, Washington, in the homelands of the Duwamish peoples. And I work for the uh, Marysville School District and Tulalip Tribes as a director of Indian education for the Marysville School District. So I'm happy to, uh, to be here. And I'm also giving thanks to you and for your advocacy and for the work that uh, that you do. So um, that's kind of our traditional way of uh, introducing ourselves. And what that's uh, really doing is establishing uh, who one is, where they come from, who their, their family is. And to, uh, to, to, to folks who are attuned to um, kind of a traditional ways of being and understanding in this really ties into uh, the beginning of a conversation uh, which you asked for in terms of uh, Lakota culture and um, worldview philosophy, that sort of thing. Um, in, in Lakota ways, uh, we say matakue oyasin, uh, we are all related, we are all connected and that uh, there's a deep importance on uh, kinship and how we are related to not only one another, but to uh, literally that of all uh, creation. And so in my introduction, I'm uh, telling you exactly who, who I'm related to, who my uh, family is, uh, where they come from, 
and with the, the lineage is, as well as um, what my, uh, also in Lakota, we have something called uh, our, our roles and responsibilities. And we can get into this a little deeper if you like um, in a little bit, but roles and responsibilities go back to this idea of kinship and of, of relation that we're all uh, related and interconnected. And uh, there's an understanding there that we have uh, responsibilities um, and roles to fulfill for the benefit and well-being of not only our own kind of uh, immediate families, but uh, extended families, our tribal nations, and really to all creation. And so when I share with you my Lakota name, uh, and, and actually even before that, Lakota itself, it translates to, to meaning um, kind of loosely, best, best way to translate it in English would be like to be a good relative. So that in itself is the role and responsibility to be a good relative. But that name, Wakian Wanatan, that um, is one of my uh, great grandfathers dating back to the, the 1700s. And he uh, was what you call a winter count keeper for the Honk Papa band of Lakota. And the Honk Papa, there's, there's seven bands of the Lakota nation uh, or kind of seven sub-tribes, if you will, of the Lakota nation. And the uh, Papa are the most northern band. And the uh, winter count keeper, their responsibility was to document the uh, kind of histories, to document uh, things, important events, uh, oral histories of the tribe throughout the year. And they would do this on uh, buffalo hides. And so when that name was passed to me, you know, and we, we could, this is another thing we can also talk about if you like, the, the importance of, of traditional namings. Uh, but when my family um, passed on that name to me uh, a number of years ago now, uh, it, it wasn't just like, you know, here's Matt, you know, like a, a name tag type thing, but uh, they really take the time to think about um, the individual and uh, will come forth with a name. And with that name, uh, there's a reason and meaning behind it. And so they chose that name for a particular reason. And now it's uh, my responsibility to fulfill and live up to uh, this, this sort of uh, ways of being that Wakian Wa'anatan, how he carried himself, the things that he did uh, for the people and now that uh, is, is part of my responsibilities in kind of this day and age. So uh, anyways, that, that short introduction, you know, is actually packed with quite a bit of uh, cultural information um, down to, you know, me explaining to you uh, my roles and responsibilities to someone who is a Lakota, uh, Dakota, they would have a, 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 a an understanding of when I share that name um, and who my family is, they'll be able to easily um, know what sort of responsibilities uh, that my family is placing upon me. There's also uh, in that introduction, a sort of uh, built-in accountability system and meaning uh, I'm telling you who, who my parents are, you know, I'm telling you who my grandparents are, and there is a, a built-in uh, accountability because now anybody out there listening, yourself included, you know, um, you're, you're hearing these things that I'm sharing today, and if somebody wanted to hold me uh, accountable, you know, uh, uh, to, to the fact of like, are the things he's sharing legit? Is he being honest? Is he, you know, being, um, you know, truthful? Uh, now, you know, who my parents are and my grandparents are. And, you know, fortunately, all my grandparents have passed on. But uh, at least with my, my parents, one could go to them and say, hey, I heard your son on this uh, uh, podcast, and he was sharing about these various experiences and different teachings. 
you know, we want to know, you know, is he being uh, truthful? Is he being, uh, you know, uh, uh, honest in um, sharing things that are appropriate to share? And, and those sort of things, the accountability piece that is inherent to our uh, yeah, there's uh, quite a bit of loaded information just in sharing introduction and, and uh, again establishing who they are, who you come from, who your family is, and what your sort of responsibilities uh, to the people are. Another piece in there and um, is that when, when I shared on Papa Banda Lakota, uh, again, there's uh, we, we call ourselves the Ocheti Shakomi, which is the seven council fires. So there's seven kind of sub sub tribes that make up the uh, Lakota Oyate, the Lakota Nation. The Honkpapa band, like I mentioned, were the most uh, northern band of the uh, Lakota. But what that translates to Honkpapa, uh, kind of the Closest translation in English would be, <clears throat> excuse me, those who uh, camp on the edge, meaning when all seven bands of the Lakota would get together uh, for ceremony, for uh, kind of greater, larger council meetings to discuss or to celebrate or to again hold ceremony, the Honkapapa band would be the ones that would pitch their teepees on the outside as sort of that kind of front line, first uh, line of uh, defense. Now, uh, you, uh, you mentioned uh, wanting to discuss uh, the pipeline, uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, and um, that battle in Standing Rock, uh, in Iawaslaha, that's, that's our name for Standing Rock, um, and in that fight for, against Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, when the world saw those teepees going up against the uh, police repression and aggression, and later the military aggression, those uh, first teepees that all went up that very front line uh, there in uh, Cannonball on the Standing Rock Reservation, those were Honkpapa uh, teepees. So <clears throat> people are still fulfilling that responsibility as Honkpapa to this day as that kind of first frontline uh, protectors against uh, aggression. So these, um, um, these uh, not, they're not labels that we carry. It's not like saying, well, I'm an American or I'm a Washingtonian, I'm a, you know, I'm a uh, whatever, you know, they, they carry uh, when, when one says, Papa Lakota, and uh, they tell you who their family is. And with that, it carries much more than just kind of like a, kind of like a name tag. Um, it is uh, some deeply embedded responsibilities to the community. And that one is to, to fulfill uh, in their life. So anyways, um, just a little bit about that uh, introduction and, and kind of a uh, uh, to oneself, but also a little bit of an introduction to kind of a Lakota uh, philosophy, teaching and understanding. And I, I know you asked a second part of that question. I think I might have missed it, though. Sure, yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for that. I always am never cease to be impressed by those introductions. I find them so beautiful and so culturally rooted. And that makes me feel really happy that you know we are you are keeping these traditions alive so thank you for that um I also really like what you mentioned about you know the philosophy that we are all connected I feel like that's such a beautiful idea um and as you were talking I I felt really odd that there was a lot of connections um between your culture and my culture too and I think that's just really cool to see how that philosophy is very true. You know, we are all related um, because there's so many similarities between everyone. Um, so I really loved hearing about that. Uh, in terms of the second part of the question, I think I was just 
hoping to learn a little bit more about how Standing Rock has impacted um, Lakota communities and how is that sort of continuing to be a topic uh, that communities are advocating for? Right on. Uh, yeah, happy, happy to discuss that further. Uh, before I jump into that, you know, I wanted to, um, in, which you mentioned in that connection of uh, cultural beliefs, you know, that's that's awesome and, and beautiful to hear, you know, the, those sort of similarities in something, and it is something that, um, you know, I'm in my 40s now and have had the opportunity to connect with a lot of uh, people's uh, globally, uh, indigenous communities and otherwise. And uh, one thing somebody will come to uh, experience in their life, the more that they're rooted and grounded in their own kind of indigenous um, um, or cultural teachings and understandings is that similarity. And I have heard uh, similar uh, philosophy, similar teachings, similar thinking for uh, in indigenous communities really throughout the globe. And we might have uh, different sh stories to explain certain uh, philosophies or certain teachings, and there might be uh, so differences uh, ceremonially, but the underlying thinking and, and philosophy and teachings and uh, worldview and understanding is really similar. And this is important in understanding events like Standing Rock with the uh, Dakota Access uh, Pipeline fight and why so many uh, peoples, uh, especially indigenous communities globally um, came to Standing Rock or came out in support of Standing Rock indigenous communities from the Pacific Islands, throughout Asia, Africa, and even uh, there is uh, still some indigenous peoples in, in Europe called the Sami peoples. Uh, and then throughout, of course, uh, what we now call the Americas, indigenous communities uh, rallied behind in support because of not only similar, uh, because uh, not only because they face similar type of extractive projects um, desecrating their homelands, their waters, their, their food, their sacred sites, but also the uh, going back to that indigenous um, worldview and understanding that ties back to uh, this Matakue Oyasi, we're all related, and the thinking behind or I should say the understanding behind um, roles and responsibilities that we understand as uh, tribal peoples, um, as native peoples, um, again, globally, that we too have various roles and responsibilities to fulfill and that these responsibilities, again, aren't simply to the benefit of our own kind of immediate families or our own uh, tribes, but they're, uh, they are responsibilities that are literally rooted into uh, our interconnectedness with all living things, uh, which includes the land, that includes the uh, fish and the, the trees and the, you know, the flowers, you know, uh, the, the insects, you know, we all have, uh, that's really literally what Mitaku Oyasin, uh, that we're not only related to other peoples, but related related to all things uh, upon this, uh, what we call Unchimaka, our grandmother earth. We are of the uh, made up of the same things. And, and all creation has um, similar type responsibilities that are unique to them. And uh, by that, I mean, you know, if we look outside, and uh, you see those trees, we call them cha or chunshoke in our language. But, uh, you know, right now, as we're having this conversation, those trees, they're uh, filtering carbon and releasing oxygen. And that's to the benefit, not only to itself, 
you know, for to to provide food for you know itself to live, but in exchange, it is providing oxygen uh, for all creation. Um, and you can start to look at um, literally all the creation, and you can see that in its um, daily existence, uh, they are fulfilling some sort of uh, act to the benefit for all creation to live. You know, the worms that are in our soil right now, that just by eating and um, uh, its digestion is providing nutrients for things to grow upon it. You remove worms from the soil and um, you're not gonna have uh, as many uh, nutrients for, for things to grow and thrive in that area. Again, uh, also back to the trees, you start removing trees and other um, uh, of our relatives that do that uh, of eating of carbon and releasing of oxygen, then that's to the detriment to, to all populations, to all creation you know, and uh, the bees, you know, you, you start removing the pollinators from uh, certain areas, then we can see the, the negative impacts and outcomes that happen to those areas uh, once you start removing. And these uh, relatives, we understand that they are simply fulfilling uh, their responsibility in their daily living. You know, no, at no time does a tree think to itself that I'm not going to uh, uh, eat, uh, um, take this carbon and, and uh, photosynthesize it into uh, uh, oxygen. It just simply does it. You know, the bees are going to pollinate. It simply does it. And so if we extend that out and we understand that, really understand that philosophy and understanding of, of we are all related, then it, it makes sense that we too, as humans, have a responsibility to fulfill in being towards all of creation and that understand that now. And some of this looks like uh, different ceremonies, you know, as Lakota, uh, we, we understand that part of our uh, fulfillment of responsibility towards all our, our relatives is through the conducting of certain ceremonies at certain geographic locations uh, that correspond with certain um, times of the, of, the, of the year in accordance with more of a uh, you know, we, we too have our own kind of like celestial calendar uh, in, in the movement of the stars and that direct us to conduct certain ceremonies at certain locations. And this, uh, this is what I meant by an, an understanding of indigenous peoples globally understand that and continue to fulfill those same type of responsibilities in their geographies and homelands throughout the world. Um, the region of where we are as, as Lakota in the no, kind of Northern Plains and into Hesapa uh, uh, in particular, Hesapa is the Black Hills. Hesapa we understand as uh, we would translate that to like the center of everything that is and there's a uh, reason why we, we call it that, you know, one of which is that we understand that uh, Hesapa is like the, the heart, uh, the chante of Unchimaka. And when folks are done with listening to this podcast, they can go to Google uh, or, or do it right now as you're listening, you know, uh, Google satellite image of the Black Hills, and you'll see that it looks uh, just like a heart. And throughout the, um, from the kind of uh, spring equinox through the winter solstice, it, um, it, it, it beats, you can, you can, it just like a heart, you know, at a, a much slower uh, rate than our own, but it does that. And then during the winter solstice, it goes into to hibernation. 
and uh, until the the thunder beans come back, the lightning comes back in the with the spring equinox and uh, brings life once again. But you can start going to indigenous communities globally, and they'll have very very similar teachings about certain geographies that they too are instructed to conduct different ceremonies at certain times of year, as well as to be protectors of those particular areas. If you were to go spend time with the indigenous peoples of um, you know, the Amazon rainforest, they'll have a very similar uh, teaching about the Amazon that we do about the the Black Hills being the heart, but to them, the Amazon, they, they, they refer to as the lungs. And you can go into uh, Aboriginal peoples of um, Australia who talk about those great barrier reefs as the liver, the filtering out and uh, kind of the toxins to provide a healthy kind of, uh, you know, lack of a better word, blood, which is that water for uh, you know the the rest of uh, sea life, but anyways, um, that, that's kind of a, a conversation you can dip, dig further into. Uh, you'll see this similar understanding. So going back to Standing Rock, then, and uh, with that as a background, um, it, it can drive home for folks the necessity for us to protect certain lands and certain waterways because we have retained our traditional uh, connection and understanding to these different lands, different geographies and different waterways. And we understand their importance in needing to protect. And uh, when you put in things like uh, oil pipelines that desecrate these geographies, these lands and waterways, then we create a, a great disruption that will impact not only us as Lakota people, um, who obviously face the immediate uh, impacts of an oil pipeline due to the fact that it's going through our, our only source of uh, drinking water and the potential threats that an oil spill will have, um, but also, uh, we understand that disrupting things like the Missouri River and a number of uh, what we call sacred sites throughout the, um, uh, the route of that particular pipeline that it desecrated causes great disruption. And that these geographies are not places that can be simply rebuilt like a store or, you know, any other sort of uh, building that they were placed there with, um, you know, if you go to certain areas, again, like the, the rainforest, the Black Hills, but there's there's more places than just that. You can feel the, the sort of uh, intensified energy in these different areas. Uh, indigenous people call them sacred sites, um, but, or, or places that they go uh, to, to fulfill various ceremonial responsibilities. So we have a, a responsibility as a Lakota placed in certain geographies to protect certain areas. So we're gonna fight against these uh, extractive uh, practices, um, not just for the sake of our own clean drinking water and clean air due to the, the fracking and stuff, but to our responsibilities down to protecting water protecting the land and which again provides for um, all of creation. Uh, the kind of more bigger um, or more like long-term, I guess you should say, you know, kind of impacts, you know, for, for Standing Rock. Standing Rock itself is really more of just a continuation of the very long resistance that uh, indigenous peoples generally, but as Lakota people specifically, that we have engaged in against the settler colonizer since their encroachment upon uh, our traditional homelands, you know, since the, uh, you know, kind of like 
early to mid 1800s. Uh, it was us Lakota, you know, we, we've twice declared war against the United States. It's something that they don't really teach in uh, history books, but the Lakota, and uh, this dates back to my, that name that I shared with you, Anatan. he was uh, part of this, you know, as along with his son and his grandsons, they, they were all part of our various wars against the United States. But in 1866, um, we declared war against the United States. Um, you can look it up. It's called Red Cloud's War of 1866 to 1868. And where various bands of the Lakota, we came to, together to engage in war against the United States due to their encroachment and desecration of uh, our traditional lands when they were going uh, up from the kind of south into uh, to, to my, was now present-day Montana to search for gold. And uh, the result of that um, was the United States government um, uh, ceding to us militarily. They were defeated militarily. And uh, in 1868, the United States um, asked to enter into a peace treaty with our people to end, for us to end making war against them. Uh, again, because they were militarily uh, defeated by the likes of Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, and, and a number of other of our, our, our great leaders. And that's how we got our um, second Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, which uh, reaffirmed our original treaty with the United States in 1851 also called a Fort Laramie Treaty, which essentially um, uh, reaffirmed our traditional homelands and that the United States uh, was agreeing to not enter into our homelands that they would leave us alone, essentially for us to stop making war against them. And so we did, and we actually went and burned down every single military fort that was along that particular trail after the signing of that agreement. So we had peace with the United States uh, for about 10 years. And uh, after the signing of that 1868 treaty and in the late 1870s, uh, the United States broke their treaty agreement with us when they sent in a delegation of, uh, um, of uh, speculators, gold speculators into actually the Black Hills, uh, along with uh, escorted by the US military, they, they violated our treaty. And uh, once they violated that treaty, we once again uh, declared war against the United States. And a lot of people are a little more familiar with uh, some of the battles uh, that took place at this time, uh, specifically the Battle of Little Bighorn, which is uh, a pretty well-known um, conflict in, in U.S. history is sometimes taught in history courses, but at the time it was uh, it, uh, considered the greatest defeat of the U.S. military in uh, U.S. history, where we once again uh, militarily wiped out uh, the U.S. Uh, what changed at this time was the strategy on part of the U.S. government that they did in fact find gold and other uh, resources in the Black Hills. And um, they, uh, at this time, devised different strategies to go after our people, uh, given the fact that they were, have been unsuccessful militarily over the course of uh, decades, that they changed strategy, which this strategy would have uh, wide ramifications to uh, other Native peoples uh, throughout uh, the, the land. Uh, the first of which was they devised a, uh, well, they devised a two-pronged strategy. And the first part of that strategy was a buffalo eradication um, uh, strategy uh, where they paid what's now called buffalo hunters uh, 
which were essentially white guys from the East Coast who would hop aboard the trains and they would ride through uh, the Great Plains and just shoot and kill uh, buffalo literally from the, the train cars. Uh, this campaign was a part of what they call uh, a starvation uh, or seller starve campaign. They wanted us to give up the rights to the Black Hills, uh, but we refused to give up the rights to the Black Hills. So their strategy was to starve us to death by uh, committing a, a mass genocide against our uh, buffalo or, or peteo yate in our language, the bison relatives, where they literally slaughtered, uh, uh, you know, there was at one time over 50 million uh, bison that roamed the kind of northern southern plains. And within um, a few short years of this eradication program, the bison population was brought down to less than 50, 50 million down to 50. Um, in fact, I believe that the exact number was around 30 something. That's why actually Yellowstone Park was created to uh, protect this last remaining uh, buffalo population. Uh, for those who have been in the Northern Plains, Southern Plains, you know, we, we, we can't grow gardens and don't have an abundance of food resources like other regions. So we really relied upon the uh, Buffalo Nation for our, our prime source of food and economy. So that was prong one. Prong two was to pass a law uh, to mandate uh, what uh, we now know as the Indian boarding school era uh, policies uh, to make it uh, legal to remove uh, native children from the ages three, four, up into 18 from their homes to go to church sponsored government ran, excuse me, uh, opposite uh, government sponsored church ran uh, boarding schools where the policy was to uh, assimilate, or in the words of its founder, uh, Henry Pratt, to kill the Indian to save the man. So people got to understand that these are, are both part of a, a war campaign to access uh, lands and resources for the settler colonizer. And uh, of course, we resisted um, uh, the efforts on part of the U.S. government and military then, and we continue to battle them through uh, the courts uh, via the threat theft of the Black Hills. And in the, uh, uh, if you come into more kind of modern times of uh, recent times of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, with the rising of uh, the Red Power Movement, the American Indian Movement, uh, this, this uh, a lot of it all stemmed from uh, Lakota peoples were central to this. And, uh, so this is why I say the Static Rock is really just an, another one of the um, kind of greater resistance battles against the settler colonizer stemming all the way back to, you know, the 1850s. You know, people have to understand it in, in that sort of context that it wasn't like a, a watershed moment that just uh, you know, arose out of nowhere that uh, you, know, you, you can go back to again to the, the 60s and 70s with the occupation of, of Wounded Knee and uh, the military standoff that took place there with the American Indian Movement and other Lakotas against the US military. Uh, folks can look at other uh, similar occupations uh, and understand that uh, we have long resisted uh, the, the settler colonizer or motivations. It, it's also important to put into context, um, if you, we were greatly uh, punished, you know, way to put it, um, for our resistance against uh, settler colonization, where uh, the U.S. government has imposed many um, actions against uh, our peoples that have led to uh, the Lakota people, if you were to look at uh, poverty and in the US, um, you would see that in the Northern Plains, uh, the, the, the poorest places in the United States are all in Lakota, uh, Dakota reservations in North 
in South Dakota. Um, and on par with uh, poverty rates that you see down in places like Haiti and, and other uh, developing countries, you know, we have very similar uh, rates of poverty, you know, and Standing Rock itself has a 70% unemployment rate. Uh, Pine Ridge has a 90% unemployment rate. Crow Creek Reservation is the poorest place in the U.S. You know, these are all poverty rates that are, again, similar to other developing countries. Our life expectancy in the, and uh, for uh, our families continue to live on reservation is a good two decades less than, uh, in some cases, three decades less than the general U.S. population. And these, this was all by design due to our, our resistance. And that's important to understand if you um, look at uh, these um, campaigns of resistance against the U.S. government, that you have quite literally the poorest peoples in the U.S. Uh, fighting against uh, the, the richest country in the, in the world and uh, their corporations, oil companies, banks, and stuff like that, that we continue to, to fight. And that's to be understood going all the way back to what started this conversation, this Mitakwe Oyasi, we're all related, we're all connected. Uh, we understand that our way of life and how we want to live, choose to live and need to live uh, is so much more than uh, what the, uh, the uh, settler colonizer way of life has to offer. We, have what, we want no part of it. You know, uh, it's it's riches, it's it's whatever. You know, are essentially meaningless uh, to uh, the beautiful way of life that that we have. So, sorry, I know that was a, a longer answer than probably we expected, but um, it's really important to to understand uh, Dakota Access Pipeline by in Standing Rock into that much greater, larger context of history of resistance as well as. Um, how it relates to our, our worldview and philosophy. Wow, that was so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I think that was such a beautiful way to put it, um, understanding these uh, intersectionalities between the you know culture, the history, and all the uh, resistance that's going on. That is, I think, one of the best ways to put it. So I really appreciate you sharing your, your words of wisdom. Um, yeah, that was uh, really interesting to learn about, especially with the, the background of all the, um, you know, the battles and the, uh, how the Lakota culture is sort of embedded into that. That was really interesting to learn about. And that sort of raised the question in my mind of <clears throat> how this sort of, it needs to be highlighted in schools. And um, I know you also work in a school district. So I was just wondering, like, how do you think that we can teach this history more um, and highlight it more and spread the word more about this? Yeah, there's a great opportunity for, especially folks living here in Washington state, thanks to the efforts of uh, former Senator John McCoy from the Tulalip tribes. Uh, he was uh, successful in his efforts over the course of a couple of decades. It took him a while to, to get this, but he worked with um, basically taking that question you have about getting this sort of uh, history of uh, not just obviously Lakota, but we're, here we're talking about the Coast Salish tribes uh, into the schools, as well as um, their uh, current, what, what is treaty rights, what is tribal sovereignty, what is tribal governance, um, these sort of things, what is tribal economics, you know, because uh, there's a tendency to kind of like leave um, indigenous peoples in the, in the past, you mm -hmm. know, kind of a, a pre-1900s and that's about it. So he uh, worked with uh, the 29 uh, tribal nations that are located here to, who uh, develop curriculum to put into the K through 12 schools curriculum that comes from 
what these various tribes themselves wanted taught in the schools, what, what they want uh, other uh, people to know about them. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, culturally relevant and he passed a law uh, or legislation uh, first in the early 2000s and to uh, ask that um, it's called since time immemorial tribal sovereignty curriculum be taught in the K through 12 schools. When that legislation first passed, uh, there wasn't, um, it was just encouraged. School districts around the state were encouraged to use this curriculum. Curriculum that is free, it's online, it is uh, accessible to to anybody. Um, The state office of native education actually provides free professional development trainings for teachers and school districts on how to implement the curriculum. Uh, It's very, very thorough. But anyways, at the time it was just encouraged for school districts to uh, incorporate this curriculum. And then uh, in 2014, so close to 10 years after it was passed, there was um, a study to see how many school districts around the state were actually implementing and utilizing the curriculum in some capacity. And sadly, there were just two school districts in the state that were utilizing the curriculum. One was, is actually where I work with, with Marysville. And uh, the second is, was Fife, uh, Fife with, which is uh, kind of North Tacoma. Uh, ironically, you know, and not too surprisingly, there are both school districts that have tribal nations located within their school boundaries, Marysville with the Toledo tribes and Fife with the Puyallup tribes. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't too surprising that these were two school districts that were using the curriculum. But that was also pretty sad that uh, even progressive districts like Seattle weren't uh, utilizing this curriculum. Uh, so McCoy went back to the state legislature and he uh, really just changed one word in his initial uh legislation around this curriculum from uh, that it be encouraged to shall. (laughs) And so since 2015, school districts are supposed to be implementing this curriculum. Mm -hmm. So for folks who want to uh, support the uh, kind of all these things that we're talking about is to to go to their own uh, school boards or their own schools and simply ask you know, um, is this curriculum being used? Mm -hmm. It's state mandated. The state mandates things for schools all the time. You're a student, you know this, Uh, a lot of uh, tests and classes you have to take are all mandated by the state. And, um, you know, therefore, you know, this curriculum should be being taught as well. And it's a K through 12. And it isn't just history, you know, it's, it's curriculum that's embedded in English classes and science classes, as well as, of course, uh, history courses. So that's where folks can start um, to, to, to start asking those kind of hard questions. And if they're not being taught, then um, start really questioning them. Why, why not? You know, this is a, a state mandate uh, since 2015. You know, that's seven years ago now. Uh, that's plenty of time to implement a curriculum that's free. And that was by design. Uh, McCoy was a very brilliant uh, politician. And uh, when he uh, developed that uh, legislation, he wanted to, in his words, eliminate any and all excuses that school, schools and school districts might have for not implementing the curriculum. So he ensured that it was free because that's, you know, obviously number one, you know, school districts could say they don't have the funds to buy a curriculum. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no excuse there because it's free and it's online and the um, uh, lesson plans are already done. Teachers don't even have to develop lesson plans. The lesson plans are done for them uh, and literally spelled out, you know, kind of a step-by-step on how to implement curriculum. Uh, He also made professional development free for teachers and schools and school districts. So if anyone had uh, any sort of questions or a lack of understanding on how to implement it, 
then there's free trainings. The, the state office of native ed will literally send uh, a team into your school and teach uh, uh, educators on how to implement this curriculum. So wow. that excuse isn't there. Uh, the only excuse would be a lack of, of will to do so. So that would be number one. And I'm, I'm happy to be a resource for any school districts out there if, if they go to their schools and find that they're not implementing the curriculum to get them connected, like with the State Office of Native Education and um, other resources to help ensure their districts are uh, implementing this curriculum. Wow, that is such a wonderful system and program. And thank you for sharing like all the uh, ins and out of it with me as well. Um, that was really interesting to hear. And that also gives me hope as a student, um, as someone who's also passionate about like doing land acknowledgements in schools and also sharing this, this knowledge about indigenous cultures with my classmates. I think that this curriculum is just really wonderful. And uh, I have been talking about that at my school district as well. Um, as I feel like uh, you mentioned, you know, it should also be integrated into like science classes. And I recently saw, you know, this, this post on uh, Instagram where it was like, you know, a lot of uh, inventions are created by tribal communities, but like aren't really given credit for. So I think a syringe was created by tribal yeah. communities. Absolutely. And yeah. a lot of other such inventions. Um, yeah. So that was something I was like, hey, you know, uh, integrating that and teaching that while uh, talking about science can be like a way to integrate that. So, yeah, it's definitely important. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, there's a good book called uh, Indian Givers, how Native peoples of the Americas help transform the world. Mm -hmm. And it, it goes um, in depth into things like that, whether it's syringe or, you know, people who take aspirin or ibuprofen, you know, mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, the vast majority of what's now considered Western pharmaceuticals uh, medicines actually derive from traditional medicines that indigenous peoples of uh, throughout North and South America were already using. Yeah. You had uh, Aztecs who were uh, doing open heart surgery well before the Spanish came. You had Mayans who were doing, uh, I mean, they had, um, they were doing brain surgery way before Europeans. Uh, to Yeah, there, there are so many examples, even to food cultivation, where 60% uh, of the world, the foods now consumed uh, around the world were actually first uh, cultivated and harvested uh, by indigenous growers uh, mm. here. Um, you could, the, the potato, tomatoes, jalapenos, you know, a lot of peppers, uh, chocolate, you know, there's, there's uh, a lot of things to dig into. Sure. Yeah. And similarly, um, I also came across something about like state curriculums and it was like 27 states like failed to mention um, Native history in a post 1900s context. So a lot of like what's being taught is also still rooted in the past. Um, I mean, at least there's been some shifts, like you mentioned with the since time immemorial, like to teach um, that these events happen, but obviously there's a lot more work that can be done to like teach about like native uh, culture now in the present and all the advocacy that's going on now. Yeah, absolutely. And I apologize, you actually broke up there for a second, but I cut the majority of what you were saying. And uh, that's true. And that is one of the things that uh, Native peoples, especially here, uh, fight against. You know, Washington's a little different in that there are tw 29 tribes here. Seattle has a very large Native population. But if you start going out east and into the East Coast in particular, where you have a, a number of tribes that were uh, eradicated completely or mm -hmm. via forced removal um, into uh, present-day Oklahoma, there, there's not a, a significant uh, Native population. And um, you go into some of these states and regions and they truly believe that uh, Native peoples have gone extinct, that there are no more 
uh, Native peoples because uh, the combination of not having uh, tribal nations or large uh, tribal populations in their area, along with that curriculum uh, that you mentioned. Um, you know, the only thing I would add to that, and per perhaps one of the um, uh, really good things that did come out of Standing Rock and also the uh, with, with social media that um, it was perhaps one of the first times that in, uh, Native peoples here were, were extremely visible mm -hmm. and uh, to, uh, you know, a really a world population. And so that was uh, probably one, one of the really good things that did come out of Standing Rock. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I just like to ask you if you have any sort of ending remarks about, you know, any messages you'd like to share with the community, how people can take action, um, sort of messages on how can you preserve, you know, indigenous culture, anything you'd like to add there? For sure. Um, so when I mentioned uh, Lakota being a good relative, and that that's something that is carried um, again, not just to our own families and extended families, but to wherever we go. And I, I share this uh, to, to folks, especially you know out here, that I'm a guest in Coast Salish territory in the same way that anybody else who isn't Coast Salish is uh, a guest in their lands. Uh, that just because I share a uh, native um, uh, uh, background in, in um, history, uh, you know, my, my, my peoples are not traditionally from here. So I'm a guest in their lands. And so that means that I too need to be a good relative to our, our Coast Salish uh, communities right? and really wherever uh, I am throughout the world, you know, that, that that teaching needs to, to carry on. But um, I share that because um, a lot of times I, I hear from non-Native peoples wanting to know how to, um, asking on how to, to best interact or engage with tribes. And I say, well, I have to do the same thing. I'm in the same position as you. I, mm -hmm. I'm not indigenous to this particular region. The Coast Salish peoples have different teachings, different culture, different, um, protocols, uh, different understanding. My people didn't live along, you know, the, the oceans and stuff like that. So they, right. they know how to best live with these lands and waters, not me. So, uh, or any of us who are, are not uh, indigenous to this region. So I too have to learn from them on how to best caretake and live with uh, these lands and waters. You know, that it's their teachings that have uh, carried this region um, for tens of thousands of years. You know, if you think about just Seattle alone, you know, you had Duwamish, Suquamish, Snoqualmie, all these uh, surrounding tribes that lived here for tens of thousands of years, and they were able to do so without creating a mass disruption to uh, the environment here, you know, kind of the greater environment. And in less than 150 years, uh, settler colonizers <laughs> did the exact opposite, you know, where you now you have uh, bodies of water, the Duwamish River, the Puget Sound, they're, they're so polluted that you, it's advised to not even um, uh, fish or consume fish and, and stuff like that from their waters, you know, and that's telling, you know, a, yeah. a group of people that have lived here for tens of thousands of years could never say that you know, because they understood how to live with this land. So that's uh, kind of the only thing I would leave with is uh, no matter where folks are, um, you know, take the time to really get to know and understand um, and uh, develop relationship with the, the peoples of that area. And that can be a long process, you know, that can, that can take a while. But once you um, have shown that you are somebody who has a, a, a good heart, you're not there to exploit the peoples or the teachings or the culture that you're there to uh, wow. participate and support that, um, 
you know, of really beautiful relationships come from that. So uh, yeah, that's what I, I would leave folks with. Awesome. Thank you so much. I think that's such a beautiful message of, you know, learning to respect and appreciate other uh, cultures and also trying to uh, put yourself in their shoes and learn as much as you can from them. So thank you so much for sharing. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you say Wopila to say thank you. Is that yep. correct? Okay. And, well. Yeah, we have a couple of different ways, but that's one of them. Wopila is uh, it's more of an expression of gratitude. I am very grateful to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Wopila to you for sharing your words of wisdom and uh, coming here. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. And Wopila Tanka, thank you. And uh, we'll talk soon. For sure. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.